beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. I mostly get excited when I make an appointment to talk with someone for meet me in the field. Today I am really excited. I'm speaking to my friend Sam. I met Sam, according to him, about five years ago, although it feels like about three years ago to me. It was only during preparing, and I've put preparing in inverted commas, and I'm doing the inverted comma sign with my hands when I say it, because I do not prepare for chats. I think a bit about my relationship and history with the person I'm going to talk to, and otherwise let the conversation go where it must go, mostly. It was during this thought back when I recalled that Sam and I, for a while, met at the Vida Air Cafe in Greenpoint on Tuesday afternoons, just to catch up and check in with each other. I loved those times together, and only now realize how much I miss them. I think it was my move away from Cape Town that brought this to an end, if I remember correctly. What I love about Sam is his nearly childlike passion and commitment to whatever he decides is important for him at that stage in his life. I believe he applied this commitment to his spiritual journey too, and I know you are going to hear the passion coming through in our chat. I must warn you though, this recording was done in a lovely old coffee shop in Greenpoint. The staff was kind enough to switch the music off where we were sitting, but you can still hear them moving around on the wooden floor, and at stages working quite lightly behind the counter. This had the potential to irritate me and distract me during our chat, but I made a choice to allow these sounds to add to the ambiance. It may distract from the quality of the sound, but not from the quality of the conversation. So, one, two, three, let's do it. Right, Mr. Sam, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you so much for doing this. Really, I pleasure. I know you are extremely busy. I really appreciate your commitment. It's one of those things when you say you're going to do something, you do it. So I'm very, very chuffed to have you at and on Meet Me in the Field, our podcast about spiritual journeys. Now, I got to know you three years ago, four years ago. Wow, it's been almost five years. Are you serious? 2013 July is when we met. Oh, my word. Can you remember, I thought about this morning, how often we met for coffee at Vida Air down the road on Tuesday afternoon. Absolutely. I, I kind of completely forgot about it. So Absolutely. there was a sweet memory that came back. Well, during so, that time, I mean, I was looking for new paths, new directions, new people. And you're one of those people. You're one of the people that I knew had something that I either wanted or admired or a combination of those two things. And part of that was about spirituality and a clarity of direction. And those coffees were very sort of like low-level strategy you know they were about <laughs> spending time with people who I thought were seeing things differently differently to how I'd seen them and um, you were part of that process you know you're one of the guys who I tapped for time <laughs> tapped for time I loved it I really did it sounds as if you went on a journey to find spirituality did you not grow up with religion or spirituality or did you lose it somewhere along the way? Well, I think spirituality is, it is certainly a journey. And I think part of the problem that I had as a kid is that I was taught that spirituality was a destination that you kind of got to, and it was kind of linked to perfection, or was linked to this idea that um, there was a Jesus character, or there was a Mary. Now, Mary was a virgin, you know. She had to obviously be a virgin to give birth to Jesus. She couldn't be a woman who had a husband, and maybe they enjoyed having sex to have a baby because that would be somehow a bad idea you know it's just dirty so, so, I can't yeah, even think so even the you know even the conception of the Christ in my Christian home had to come from a virgin of course yeah. and I mean that's a starting point I mean how wrong can that be as a starting point because <laughs> perfection and the virgin principles are impossible yeah. and I believe that I had a journey away from spirituality as I grew up in a home that had a starting point of the virginal perfection which is, of course, impossible to achieve. My parents couldn't achieve it. You know, my dad was an alcoholic, so he was very much not achieving it. So I sat next to ch- in church next to my dad and my parents, 
on Saturday night, like there was a chair being thrown through the lounge window. My dad was drunk, and then you were singing you know, carols and and <laughs> church songs on a Sunday morning at eight o'clock, you know, yeah. with the domini or whatever, with the pastor. And I couldn't compute those things, so I just turned my back completely on the whole lot. Okay. Um, and I went to my parents when I was about twelve, and my dad always spoke about how, like, you know, like the Jewish, like, you know, the coming of a man when you're 12 and he was very Old Testament-y you know because I you know being an alcoholic he liked judging himself and then feeling guilty and then when drinking and judging everybody else you know it was a nice <laughs> cycle you know <laughs> so so he would always talk about this 12 year old line in the sand in the, the, the Jewish faith and so I went to him when I was 12 and said I'm not going to church anymore oh wow and my siblings thought that would be the preamble to a beating you know and my dad kind of said why not and I said well I, I, I don't Want to, just don't want to do it. I don't believe any of it. And I'm, by the way, I spend my I spend my collection money every Sunday on Pac-Man down the road <laughs> from church. Anyway, you know, once the the sermon starts, I sneak out the back and go and play Pac-Man with the collection money. You know, so I'm doing that for like a year. So, so I think he was he was kind of in, strangely wise in a way that he said to me, "Fine, if you don't want to go, you don't have to go." Oh wow! And that was kind of the the end of the first act in my multiple act play regarding spirituality did you not fear rejection or a form of abandonment or punishment or no I, I was desperate for rejection by my family because okay. I thought they were all complete lunatics who okay. had no value or safety to add to my life anywhere so the idea of rejecting like my dad played golf so I would not pick up a golf club okay. because anything that involved him and what he stood for needed to be as far away from who I became as possible which of course is ridiculous because we are all a version of our parents no matter how hard we damn well fight <laughs> not to be the we get the more the closer the more we, we realize it you know what i mean but as <laughs> a shocking, but as a 15 year old i thought that i you know could somehow stage manage my genetics differently <laughs> which doesn't really work out that way but um so yeah so, so, so act one was basically about turning my back on all of that stuff um and of course blaming god the church religion as being this like guilt imposing bad idea that's polluting society and you know the opium of the masses and all the fantastic cliches yeah. that one can actually put on spirituality if you're a very hurt scared and lost kid which I was so did all of that and that basically was my sort of standard line for decades okay um, so, act, so phase two or act two of my spiritual journey was about denying that there was anything there although always feeling like there was something there and not because I was brought up in a way to feel those things necessarily but just because there was just a sense that there was a bigger purpose or a connection between people and all that kind of stuff so that then ran through my hedonistic 20s um, <laughs> and, um, and probably fairly hedonistic 30s where I mean, I had the exact opposite of a God-centered life. I think I thought I was God. And I think I thought that what I wanted is all that mattered. And um, it was my rules and my way of the highway. And, of course, that caused a lot of people immense amount of hurt and pain and harm, including myself. Not realizing that. Not realizing I was doing it, or even actually realizing I was doing it, but not being able to stop. So then, like an alcoholic dad, I fell into all forms of addictive behavior across the spectrum and a lot of that was about managing pain and anxiety what I've learned about addiction in the last decade particularly the last five years is that it's not about the drug or the alcohol or the gambling or the sex or the whatever you're doing you know it's that's just a, a, a for me I, as I understand it that's a mechanism or a tool to deal with the anxiety and the fears and all those things that of course I had from a very young kid yeah. and the minute I was legally allowed to pick up a drink or could drive a car to go and buy some drugs or whatever it was I was going to do that because that was a fast track way of controlling my world because I felt I was totally out of control and I think that that's the sadness in a way with turning my back on the spirituality because I think if there had been some sense of that in that period of time there could have been at least a starting point to build something worthy and upright on but I just had no right I had no family that I could turn to there's no spiritual basis I could turn to you so yeah that was a kind of a lost two decades okay. in many ways and I the think lost years the lost years you know and I think back on them I have a couple of giggles sometimes about <laughs> some of the fun things that went on <laughs> so it wasn't all bad was no, it no it wasn't no. <laughs> and I had, I had some, I've met some friends in that time that are still my friends today 
and I learned some things. But, but I wouldn't do those two decades again if you had to ask me to. Yeah. But regret doesn't really help much in managing your life, so I don't really regret <laughs> things. But I do have to say sorry for things sometimes. Those two decades were, were pretty rough. But so with, with regards to spirituality, they were void of that whole topic for that period of time. Then, of course, I had a kid, a son, when I was 33. And the first turning point for me back to the place where... I believe probably I was born. I think we were all born with a connection to something which is very hard to explain when you learn to talk. And then we unlearn it or we develop it in certain ways at a later point. My son asked me, is there a God? Oh, wow. How old was you he know, then? Like three or four or something like that. Seriously? You know, what is this thing with God? You know, I mean, it's like at that point you're dealing with Father Christmas and no. the Easter Bunny okay. and all these kind of like things, you know? Not that I'm saying that God and the Easter Bunny are the same. But they, <laughs> they do have similar places in their imagination because just like the Easter Bunny, you never see him. Yeah. Like the Easter Bunny, when he arrives, like good things happen. But part of you suspects that maybe he might not be involved in the delivery of those eggs <laughs> or whatever it is. But you'd like to believe he is because the Easter Bunny is reliable. <laughs> he comes on every Easter morning, Sunday morning. <laughs> the eggs are always delicious, you know, or whatever, you know. So that was a bit of a turning point for me. And I had to kind of question it. And the answer I gave to him was, yes, I do believe. Which was the first time I'd said that I had any direct acceptance of there being some form of God spiritual thing in 25 years oh well but I couldn't lie to my son yeah you know well I didn't want to lie to my son yes um, I lied to him about the Father Christmas for a while thereafter but that was for his own good <laughs> for his own good <laughs> and the funniest thing is is that when he realized that Father Christmas was not true he sort of kept pretending to believe <laughs> out of fear that the, the gifts might not come oh, shit. <laughs> so, how yeah. old is he now he's now 11 okay so and how long ago did he realize that father christmas uh, probably is like six years ago or something like he's, five or six you he know? sounds like a like a very bright little boy yeah he's uh he has all my good sides none of my bad sides <laughs> so he's gonna be he's gonna be okay he's, he's still young he can he's learn so yeah so then i basically didn't realize that I was going on a spiritual journey but I knew about six years ago that I was in deep trouble I turned 40 and I had a big party for my 40th birthday and none of it none of the clothing felt like it fitted properly if I could use the metaphor just the way the evening happened and the speeches and the partner I was with at that time and the the way the party went and the after party and the, the drugs and the drinking and the everything, I felt like I was wearing clothing that didn't fit me properly anymore. And it wasn't sort of the beginning of a midlife crisis, although it may have looked like that from the outside. It was almost like the beginning of a, a midlife awakening. Um, and I, I knew that I was in deep trouble, that I was I'm not living my true life and I was living a life where I had these compartments where different people were in okay and they were all quite carefully managed to <laughs> be a fully 360 degree reality but none of them really were they were all like 180 degrees of reality and then bullshit that basically kept them from each other yeah. and, and that's no way to live a life and you, you, you couldn't risk the two groups meeting well that was the, the problem with my 40th birthday meeting. party is that they're Ooh. all in the same room a bad and, and it was just it just felt <laughs> uncomfortable yeah so I didn't deliberately do anything in the beginning but a shift a shift occurred and what I've realized over the last five years is that you get earthquakes that move the earth very quickly and sometimes they cause valleys and they do all kinds of volcanoes and stuff and then sometimes there's just a slow shift under the desert you know yeah. and in a way I feel like my journey from being spiritually numb and actually numb to being on a journey and a path that's going to a place that is much more fulfilling and much more honest and much more connected than what it was it's like a shifting it's a shifting process but the big moment in time came when I five years ago went to the US on business to Florida to a little town called Sarasota and I was googling the town before I went there I'd not been there before and one of the things the town had on its like website was that they're the number one voted the number one beach town in America for five years in a row let's say 
eight years in a row. Sarasota. Sarasota, Florida, yeah. Never heard of them. Exactly. No one has. <laughs> Little beach towns, kind of like Hermanus in America. Okay. Um, but they've been voted the number one beach in America for five years, they'd Good say. And I was there for four or five days. And I got to day three or four. I was in my hotel on my computer, checking emails. And I suddenly realized I'd not been to the beach. Oh, well. And I thought, okay, so I'm now leaving tomorrow morning to fly to somewhere else at like 6 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whatever it was. I'm in the number one beach town in America and I've not gone to the beach. And it was summer, it was July. Oh, my word. Uh, May have been June, June or July. And I just thought, who are you? Like, what if... I know I've done all these work things and I've had all these calls and I've done this and meetings and whatever, whatever, whatever. And when did I become the guy who went to the number one beach town in America and has not seen the beach? Yeah. So I cancelled my trip for the next morning. I phoned my car rental company up and said, "Where if I take this car for a drive to a different airport somewhere in America, what would it cost me? And it wasn't too bad. And I cancelled all my meetings for the next trip of, leg of my trip to Los Angeles. And I went on a drive to the house that I lived in half my life before. When I was 21, I was at that point 41. So I was like 20 to 21, I lived in a house in Georgia. I drove to the to where I was going, and my mission was to I wanted to go back to a point. The last time I could actually make sense of myself, the last time I could actually I could kind of think that everything lined up. There wasn't this dispersed multiple layers of myself that couldn't connect. And it was when I was 20, 21, that kind of time of my life. And I drove to the house I lived in, which was actually the grandmother of my girlfriend at that time in Georgia. And it took me a whole day. I drove for like 10 hours or 11 hours or whatever. And on that drive, I canceled projects. I, can't, I just did a whole lot of like... Cleaning, cleaning up. Cleaning up. Oh, know, wow. And buying myself some time. Not knowing why really. I was almost in autopilot. Yeah. And driving this car. And I arrived at the house early that evening. And I rang the doorbell. It's like a little sort of farmish area outside Savannah in Georgia. And this old lady answered the door. And it was like... <laughs> girlfriend's grandmother like 20 years later oh, who was now like 90 <laughs> and she said hello and I said hi you know I was here I recognized her she didn't recognize me and I said hi it's Sam um, and she gave me a big hug and everything and we went inside and sat down and had some tea and she said like you know, do you want to spend the night and I said I've actually booked a hotel because obviously I didn't know she'd even be alive yeah. I mind living there so I booked a hotel fairly close to her I said but she will come for lunch tomorrow I'll make your favorite meal so I thought that was kind of quite a interesting thing to think of so I said great so I went to my hotel had some sleep came back the next day for lunch and she had cooked a meal that 20 years before she had made for me and she remembered oh my word what it that I had been so complimentary about this particular dish and we sat and ate and the whole thing and then we were sitting outside on the porch afterwards and looking at the farmy kind of area and she said to me like you know like you know it's asking about family and kids and the whole thing I said to you, listen, I just want to say to you, like, I hope when I was 21, I was, like, grateful for everything you did for me, because I think back on you, it was fun. And she said to me, see, God loved for 20 years. Oh, I felt like the, I wanted to cry. I was like, suddenly this emotion just, like, like, welled up beneath me. And I thanked her. And I think that in that moment, what I realized is that I had created this life that was disconnected from spirituality. I, everyone was separate from one another no one knew who I really was and in the absence of connection to a God or spiritual life in the absence of having people knowing who you really are how can anyone love you because even if they try and love you you th I would think if you knew the whole truth yeah maybe you wouldn't yeah if you really knew me if you really knew you wouldn't love me right <laughs> so I went for 20 years with very good people very good relationships nice girlfriends you know lots of friends never truly accepting anybody's love people who were truly willing to love you yeah and you just Absolutely. couldn't be i couldn't, couldn't accept the love because yeah. i thought i was a con artist with who i really was and it was i was partly that so i came out to cape town changed my whole life <laughs> just like that well <laughs> I, made, I love the way you I say i made it. decisions to change yeah. my whole life and then to this day they, they sitting in this chair right too. now I every day try and not screw it up and try and do it a bit better and they're good days and they're bad days, you know. But what I didn't realize and why I'm saying all this thing in relation to spirituality is I reconnected to something that was beyond just me. 
which I sensed when my son was born and my daughter was born, and I sensed throughout the path and through the ways, but I, until I became truthful with myself about who I really was and allowed other people to, to, act, to, to see that and understand that and not to feel shameful about it. Yeah. I was unable to get back on that, that path to the truth of what's really going on. So that was a big milestone for me. Yeah, the hundreds of therapies and group sessions and I mean, literally over the last five years and I'm, I feel like I'm going the right direction. But I'm not sure you ever arrive there. And that's the fundamental issue I've always had with spirituality is that the minute someone tells me it's destinational, they kind of lose me. Yeah. Because for me, this is a spiritual moment we're having right now, talking because we're connecting. Mm. You know, when I go to the rugby and they sing the national anthem, I want to cry yeah. because people are connecting. People are actually buying into one particular thing and they are sharing a, a moment of unity. And for me, spirituality, a lot of it's about the unity of people, which of course I was terrified of for my whole life up until very recently. Yeah. I believe that that is the, the fundamental of it for me, is about the connections of people and things. And yeah, I'm on a journey now which is will take me till the end of my life and hopefully on my deathbed I feel comfortable enough to die and feeling like I've got some sense of something and then who knows what's next. Yeah. How did you experience the birth of your children? With those, what you would call a spiritual experience at that stage of your life? Okay, so the most terrifying day of my life was the day of my son's birth. Not because I saw a baby coming out of a vagina, because that is pretty terrifying, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, because, but because I knew that for the first time, I couldn't turn my back and walk away from somebody. Yeah. Oof. So I always, from four or five years old, assumed that my family needed to be eject buttonable because they were fucking crazy. Um, my dad and mom were unreliable parents. I think they, they tried their best, but in a very bad situation. And my siblings were compromised and I, I couldn't help them, although they were all older than me. But I could just, when I was like five or five-ish, I remember looking at everyone thinking, okay, this is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to assume that at any given moment, this is, I'm gonna be put into a van and driven to like the Karoo somewhere to be raised by wolves or something. You know, it was, it wasn't good, you know? It reminds me, sorry to interrupt you, of a, of a Christmas lunch we had once with a group of friends up here in Dombuskle. And somebody made dough muffins. Yes. And we ate these before the Christmas lunch. So we had this huge lunch group, loads of friends, and it went pear-shaped very quickly. Yeah. And the host sat at the end of the table as we were about to start eating. And he just looked at us all and said, Oh my God, this is a fuck up. <laughs> so it sounds like you sat at the age of five looking at these people saying, Oh my God, this is a fuck up. 100%. 100%. Unfortunately, in our family, the cakes never wore off. <laughs> so, there was no going to be there waking no. up the next morning no, and things no, no, were better. Totally. No, no, you couldn't sleep that stuff off there. <laughs> so yeah, so I so knew that they were rejectable and I picked, you know, I was a provincial athlete because I, I didn't want to be a provincial team player because I didn't mind being an individual sports guy, yeah, but being part of a team didn't really work for me, you know, like it was like too much, too, too much, <laughs> too many people knew your stuff and whatever. I, it was all about being the individual. And I always picked girlfriends who I could eject button, emotionally unavailable people. Okay. Nice people, but emotionally unavailable. I picked partnerships and businesses and the way I work. Everything was designed around not having to completely hardwire into anybody. Suddenly this, this kid comes out Ooh. and I have two major thoughts. One, I'm absolutely terrified because I know I'm going to love this child forever. And the other side of it, my dad was a terrible dad and I knew I'd be the same. Oh my God. Because, why well, wouldn't I be? Yeah. So now I love this baby unconditionally and I know I'm going to fuck the thing up. Oh my god. That's terrible. Yeah. What a terrible so thought. So that was the, the one of the and I didn't know that. I couldn't articulate that until yeah. many years later. I felt it. But I, I did a lot of work and therapy and reading and writing to get to a point where I could say what I just said now. But that is the truth of it. So am I hearing fear? Total so fear, yeah. Just, oh my god. What? Yeah. what? Do you know what? How am I going to do this? Yeah, 100%. 
And so I went into this like high work mode where I thought, well, at least if I provide a nice home and private schools and like, I just said, no, I mean, I remember going and buying a book on how to raise boys by Stephen Bidolf called Raising Boys. Cause my dad was just a crap dad. Yeah. So I didn't have any example of what it meant to connect. And there was this, this book is laid out in periods. It's like the first six months and then six months to two years. And it gives you all the different phases. And I would literally go to that chapter and I'd read saying like, you know, like when they turn two or whatever, like, you know, make sure you fun games on the floor at their level. Great. And lie on the floor, you know. There's a lot of it. Ask your partner, how old yeah, is he yeah, now? Yeah. <laughs> Eight months, okay. <laughs> Searching the book for eight months. So it's funny, you know, and I and so there was a lot of fear involved. So it was an intellectual thing for you in the beginning. At that stage. In the beginning it was very intellectual. Of course, we fell in love with each other. Yeah. But the more he loved me, the more I feared him. I mean it sounds kinda of terrible. No, I get it. But um, it's the truth and I thank God that actually I somehow kept that together. It I somehow my my kids are the Okay, I'm, I'm now in a great relationship for a number of years that's very healthy and very honest. In fact, not very honest, honest. Because I don't think there's any very or unvary when it comes to honest. You're either honest or you're not, right? Black or white. Yeah, so an honest relationship with a loving person who understands my vulnerability and I can be a complete dick around sometimes because my wiring gets too hot and I behave badly and she kind of understands more or less, puts me in my place if need be. And so that's great. But you know, we're two adults on a path together but my kids I feel like in a way like I've somehow not screwed up too badly with them but it's been a very deliberate thing and with lots of anxiety and fear and all that kind of stuff like that and because it doesn't come doesn't come natural to me and but yeah basically having a kid was a huge anxiety inducer oh, okay. and of course I acted out of my anxiety because my way of dealing with anxiety for 30 25 20 years let's say up to that point of having a kid was the same. I mean, I was 13, getting drunk on a Friday and Saturday night, not going home, sleeping in the graveyard oh, rather really? than going home yeah. because actually home was just this horror show for me. Oh, wow. um, and that behavior you know, doesn't go away unless, yeah. you, unless you stop and flip and make it go away. So Absolutely. having a kid, anxiety spikes, you know, use whatever tools you can to numb yourself out more, whether it's work or whatever it, whatever it is, just to yeah. get, get out of that space. Just don't, and don't feel this, don't, don't deal feel with this. Yeah. And of course, that is destructive. When your second child was born, the girl, how, how many years after the boy was that? Three. And how did you feel then? Well, I knew I could be an okay dad. Okay, so, so one part of it was yeah, me. Yeah, I knew I was practically able to be a dad. So okay. like I put the time in and changed the nappies and walked in prams and did the shopping and took them out and had fun and could do all of that. She was different in a way. My boy was, in a way, I saw him as like a smallish version of me and I struggled a lot with my fear screwing up because he was this perfect, beautiful little guy and I just somehow thought I would screw it up. Because why wouldn't I, you know? So that was the whole thing with her. She was this cute little thing, and I felt very differently about her, actually, just from the point of view that I kind of knew it was okay, but I protected her. Just more her. confident. I was more confident, yeah, 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 totally. But of course, with the second kid coming along, my relationship that I was in, we weren't married, but um, the woman I had kids with, our relationship never really got to a point where we matured to the point, to a stage where it was actually healthy. So. That relationship eventually ended when I think Mia must have been about three. So, so sadly, I became a kind of a good dad, but it, I never really got to become a good partner to okay. their mum, you know, which is a, a daily, ongoing thing I've got to try and fix and help and, you know, like the amends that gets made over a long period of time. For her, it's kind of like that because I'm definitely 51% to blame for our relationship ending and I own all of it. The picture I get in my head is of you having X amount of resources and you that you could give to your kids and it just wasn't more that you were physically and mentally and spiritually able to give. One of them was that I picked another emotionally unavailable person. Okay. Oh because, wow. Because then I didn't have to trust them or I didn't have okay. to rely on them. And that wasn't gonna change unless we had gone into a therapeutic process together to change that. Yeah. Which we never did. So that relationship is another relationship in my life that was 
deliberately created to allow me to keep distance. Okay, wow. So it was based on fear, yeah. not on love. I'm not saying I didn't love her at some point, but it was, she was unavailable and I somehow wanted that. Yeah. I mean, it's self-destructive and it's insane to think about. I have children with somebody unavailable to you. <laughs> Might be the worst idea in the whole world. <laughs> at that stage, it makes sense. But it made sense. Yeah, it certainly so. made me feel comfortable that I was, I could understand it. You know, and having a home that was unsafe and I didn't want to go to you and all this stuff, I guess, I recreated that as well. Yeah. I didn't want to go home. Well, with your father being an alcoholic, where and how did your mom fit in as a mom? Sure. So she was, by the time I was born, child number four, in the early 70s, she was like a disempowered housewife, multiple children, cliche. How many children are you? Four. Okay, we as well. So, yeah. Also the youngest. Yeah. So she, so she was, in a way, in my simplistic child mind, she was like a victim of a thing that had gone wrong. In, as an adult now, I realize that that's not the whole story ever. She also made choices. And she Did was, she play the victim? Yeah, to some extent. Okay. I never knew that as a kid, yeah. because I just, you know, you had this like Saddam Hussein character on one end. <laughs> and every, you know what I mean? <laughs> and everyone else was like the, the village people getting bombed with. <laughs> mustard gas you know <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's not the whole truth either do you know what I mean yeah it's just not the whole truth I'm very grateful that my mom died before my dad they've both not gone because my, when my dad had died first history would have been written by those who lived longer and he would have just remained somehow that character okay but having her go first allowed him to be just himself without that relationship being the, the, the thing we saw yeah. the whole time. Did he ever dry up? No. Not, so he died in alcohol? Yeah. Right. Yeah. He drank less and less, and you know, an 80 year old guy drinking whiskey at the pub is kind of charming because they're like, you know, interesting. Everyone loves them, you know. But I always kind of thought the phone would ring one day and it could be like, sorry, are you, you know, we've got this body. At, we found, you know, I, I mean, I really believe that because yeah. I mean, anyone who's like 80 going out jawling, you know, <laughs> things, things go wrong. Um, <laughs> So, so yes, yeah, so my mum, my mum, whether she played the victim more than she should have, I don't know, but certainly that's how we saw her. Okay. And I probably made choices in relationships in relation to that whole thing for my whole life, really, you know. Playing out that role. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm very grateful that my dad lived for five years longer than my mother, and I had a good relationship with him when he died. And okay. we spoke, we spoke about him being an alcoholic for the first time properly as adults about a year before he died oh my word. and I was driving somewhere with him and I said to him dad like what, you, what actually went down you know like, what, like, I said I'm not judging you man I've been flipping up and down the tree enough times myself to yeah. not judge you but like what actually went down you know and he said like you know I had an alcohol problem I drank too much you know and he would say things in a way that was a huge concession from him considering that he was deni a denialist of that for yeah. decades and decades and decades and it was enough for me and him to almost like just put a pin in the whole thing. Okay. Which was a great gift to me. Particularly because I've obviously also got to get on with my life. And I'm, I'm now, I have a relationship with my dad that was positive when he died, even though he was an alcoholic in my youth and created a lot of trouble. Yeah. As opposed to, my dad created trouble then he died. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> it makes a difference. So it makes a huge difference. You know? And also seeing my son and my daughter, my daughter not so much, but my son, he loved my dad, you know. In fact, he cried the most at my dad's funeral. Because he didn't see any of that other shit. He just yeah. saw the guy who was fun and funny and, you know, whatever. Also a gift. So, back to the spirituality point, though, is that it was unfortunate in the way that my dad embodied the spiritual thing for me when I was a kid. Because it just blew it up, like with golf. It just blew it up completely. Yeah. I think the minute we try and place a human being as the personification of spirituality in any way, whether it's the Dalai Lama or the Pope, I think we, you screwed. Because these people are assholes half of them, half the time. I know I'm an asshole most of the time. So if someone's looking to me for some type of guidance or wisdom, they've got to, they've got to filter that stuff very carefully. Yeah. Because I might sound quite enlightened and on a good path right now, but tomorrow I might do something that might be so terrible yes. that if this podcast becomes like the central nervous system to your spirituality, you're in fucking deep trouble. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Turn around now. Yeah, totally. Around. Because, because, because the chances yeah. are I'm going to screw it up for you. 
you know so it's got to be something that's external to that or a bigger thing than that and I think that um, religion I think is created as a myth to control people and I think it's a big confusion between religion and spirituality mm-hmm. I don't even know what spirituality really is although I know that there's something there I know that the, the myth of religion is like the myth of countries, you know, like there is no Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe only exists because enough people agree it exists. Zimbabwe is just this like area where there's animals walking around and humans walking around and some trees and a river and a dam and a lake and whatever. Huge waterfall. Totally. <laughs> and people have agreed that that area is called Zimbabwe. Yeah. So that's an example. It doesn't exist. And it's the same thing for me as Christianity or as religion. It doesn't exist unless enough people buy into it. And it's that system of getting people to buy into this myth of a religion. A lot of it's about managing large groups of people. I read this great book about chimpanzees. And they've examined like chimp culture, because they are our closest kind of like relative yeah. in, the, in the ape kingdom, to see why, why don't chimps eventually like write books and you know, fly airplanes and stuff like that. Like, what is it that's stopping them? And they reckon that when a group of chimpanzees develops beyond 125, that's the number that they use in this book, it breaks into two groups. Because you can't manage more than 125 chimps through a hierarchical system. Because it's too many people on the outskirts and you can't get them to buy into it. But the 125 seems to be the number that basically they get to and they're split apart. And they reckon the thing that made humans develop beyond chimps is that we said, okay, fine, what we're going to do, although you can't see the alpha male leader, whatever character, you're going to, we're going to all agree on this myth that this guy does exist, his name's Paul the Chimp, <laughs> and he is our leader, and as long as you don't screw around with anything he says, you're okay. Yeah. You might never even get to see him. Yeah. But if you buy into the myth, and we all buy into the myth that there's Paul the leader and Zimbabwe the country, yeah. they make control things. And I think similarly with religion. So it gets it gets branded Christianity or Catholicism or whatever, Hinduism, whatever it might be. And even if that makes you happy, go for it. You know, yeah. if you're happy to believe that Zimbabwe is actually a real thing, that's fine. But I think it's good to be conscious of the fact that Zimbabwe doesn't actually exist. Yeah. In, if you go to the moon and you look at the earth, show me where the Zimbabwe line is. <laughs> It's not there, man. It's just one big <laughs> continent of yeah. land, and we've carved it up into these myths that actually yeah. give us 50 countries in Africa, and it's bullshit. I can't help but, but hear John Lennon. Uh, yes. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. totally. Listen, so what do you believe today? What does Sam believe in, okay, if I, anything? I believe in the power of truth. Cool. And I want to be most truthful as I can be in this life going forward to myself, to others, to myself mostly. I'm going to quickly interrupt you there. Yeah. This is a sidebar. Remember that mm. you get back to what you believe in. But you are a very astute businessman. How do you bring truth into business? I mean, if you, if you look at what happened in South Africa at the moment, you sure. know, the basic principle is yeah. everything but truth. Yeah. Okay, so I have in my... Let's assume that there's like software updates <laughs> that you can <laughs> do on yourself. <laughs> So in my previous software iteration, which I used to use truth fairly liberally in business because I believe that... Business is business. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> you know. And then when I had my software update and truth became central to my whole life, I really struggled with the idea of not being truthful just all the time. Yeah. And because it caused me a lot of trouble not being truthful in my previous software update across my many my personal life, but also my business life. And... It was much easier than I thought. Are you serious? Yeah. Like, I believe that you couldn't declare markups or you had to like somehow play this game and actually it's flipping tiring to do all of that. So I probably get maybe 10% less work because I will say things like, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? People don't like that answer. Yeah. So, but it's actually easier. And I think most people that I've met and done business with in the last five years really appreciate the fact that you just are brutally true. Yeah. And I think that's something which we can all learn from each other. And it, it must starts, be quite refreshing. Totally. It's refreshing and it, it requires constant reminders. And at the, at the base of me, there's still a terrified kid who fears rejection and believes if, if anyone knows who I really am, they won't love me. Yeah. Or won't want to use me for work or won't want to contract with me or won't want to hang out with me or won't want to whatever. Yeah. It's still that base there. I will die with that as the basis of my childhood self mm. I can't change my childhood 
I don't want to change my childhood. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it's done. I've been yeah. So the inclination to want to slightly stage manage reality is still there. But on a day-to-day basis, I try not to. Okay. So you're trying to live in integrity, complete integrity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I fail sometimes and then I say sorry. Yeah. And then I succeed most of the time and I'm grateful that that is the case. Cool. You know, once but again, not, not looking for the virgin perfection. Yeah. Because it doesn't exist. Awesome. But you can definitely try. <laughs> yeah, not, you know? nothing stops you from trying. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So honesty is one? Yeah, truth is a big deal. Love is a big deal. Huh? I've learned the healing and connecting power of love. And the reason why I say I, I believe in, in that love is part of this, the greater spiritual thing is that love is incredibly powerful. I, mean, I felt the, the healing power of love from forgiveness. I found the power of love from motivating. I found, and truth, you know, truth and love go hand in hand. I think, and I don't, I'm not sure that there's this all-knowing celestial being out there who is like got this like massive hard drive that is like pushing all our data through and every word we say and every thought we have and and actually coming in with some kind of outcome from this big Excel document in the sky. No. I don't buy into that, but I do buy into that positive energy attracts positive energy and. You take light into a situation that's dark, whether it's through a comment or a hug or a very deliberate thing or an airplane filled with water to a drought or you put light into darkness, it, it has a massive effect. Love is part of that. Yeah. And certainly my motive in my life is to love. I love my children very much. I love my wife very much. I love her children very much. I love my friends very much. Um, and that is a very powerful thing. It motivates me, you know. I even love my wife's cat very Good. much. Although I'm allergic to cats. <laughs> so am I. And I've got two of them. Yeah. And I love them both. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I know that she loves the cat very much. So I even love, you know, as a secondary thing. So How does the cat feel about you? Uh, we don't talk. So I'm not sure. <laughs> Start. <laughs> you, won't, you won't know true love until you've spoken to a cat. <laughs> yeah, I got you. So yeah, a big deal. And then the connection between people. Because I think that all I know for sure is that what's happening right now feels like reality. I don't okay. know what's going to happen when I die. I don't know what happened before I was born. I don't know what's going to happen when I leave here. I'm not in control of any of those yeah. things. I don't, I don't really understand them. I don't place too much time and energy in trying to understand them because I don't believe they're there to be understood necessarily. What I know for sure is right now we are doing this and it has a certain feeling for me and it resonates in a certain way on an energetic level or on a cellular level or on a whatever. And I know that this feels good. And this feels good, I believe, because I've invested love and positive energy and truth into our relationship and into coming to this venue we're at right now and and it's resulted in a positive thing. And I think that that is definitely how it works. And I think that if you can just scale that up times the billions of people, times the lifetimes, Mm. times the whatever, the net result's got to be a very, very vastly positive thing. Yeah. That might be heaven or whatever. I don't know. But I think just knowing that is enough reason not to be a dick and not to be destructive or not to be selfish or not to be... I mean, then look after yourself. And selfish, I'm saying, is a negative. But like, yeah. you know, I think you know what I'm saying. Yes. It's, it's that kind of thing. And maybe that's what it's about. And I think Jesus or all these guys that came up and spoke about love thy neighbor and do unto others and all this kind of... It's all good stuff. Whether or not that Jesus basically was the son of God or not, you know, my guess is that he wasn't, but I feel okay to say a lot of what he said was great. Yeah. There's those complete arbitrary things that I want to know just for my own sake. How did you end up in America? Um, A lot of my life has been dictated by work and a girlfriend. Okay. You know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, I met a girl in South Africa who was American and she was going to study there and I was going to study. So I went to America, applied for university and that's kind of how I ended up in America. So you studied in America? I didn't. I actually got hoofed out of America because they changed a whole lot of the study laws regarding foreign students and that kind of stuff. And I couldn't afford to actually stay there. Okay. So I came back. Okay. Um, so how that's long why were you I went there for? About two years. Okay. And it was a good experience. I mean, I lived... So you just hung around for two years doing nothing? Some work and okay. did a little bit of fishing and <laughs> the bio yeah exactly bio. yeah totally <laughs> caught some wide mouth bass and and went fishing 
So it's a good experience, you know. And when I came back and I was here, and I started working pretty much from arriving back and the start of my own company when I was very young, and then threw myself at work. And I think like work for me has been a big guide in my life. But I realized for now, for the first time, I have a home that I love being in and I love going home to and I feel very loved there and understood there and I can... Oh, like, lovely. And so, I'm not saying I, I don't like working, but I, I, my, my work gear has definitely turned down a bit because... That's fantastic. I was definitely... Because it was a work issue addiction. at some stage, Absolutely. I remember that. No, there's no question. You know, I would go to work on a Sunday because I, would, I didn't want to be home. Ah. I sit at my desk and I mean, like, I think back on, I think, summer's day, kids at home and I'm sitting at my office and I didn't have to be there. I owned the company. Yeah. I could have gone early on the Monday morning or I could have I had conference calls at midnight because someone in America said hey yeah. are you available at like 2pm our time instead of going I actually live in a different time yeah. zone I said yeah sure the vastly different yeah. time I said, zone yeah, yeah sure of course I could do it at that time knowing it was midnight oh, yeah. but it was better than being in bed yeah. at home oh wow because I didn't want to be there yeah. you know? it was all just not mm. comfortable for me so that's changed for me a lot that's fantastic yeah. I'm so glad to hear that and where did you grow up Cape Town. I'm a, I'm a Cape Town oh, guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Grew up in Cape Town, learned I to ride a BMX. I believed you were the Josie guy. Yeah. I actually, people think I'm, I don't know what it's that is. Because you're so fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> tiring for me too, don't Slow worry. Down the no, Cape it's Town tiring, it's tiring for me as well, yeah. I need to get some flip-flops. The, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Cape Town, I learned to ride a bicycle in Cape Town, to drink okay. in Cape Town, learned to drug in Cape Town, learned to work in Cape Town, and basically just needed to actually relearn all those things yeah you know? oh, wow. um, and yeah the spirituality thing is part of it you know I I don't know whether one needs to get on their knees every morning and actually be grateful to this God figure but I know that I write gratitude lists that connect me to something so when I think of gratitude I'm not grateful to myself I don't write okay, yeah. I don't know what I'm saying I'm grateful for my house thinking well done you got a nice house <laughs> grateful for my car well done. Another well done. Car. No, for me the gratitude list is very outgoing, and that probably is my most spiritual thing that I do. Okay, so that's a definite spiritual practice that that, totally. that you apply. Absolutely. In fact, it's central to our home. Even we do oh, wow. a thing every day at dinner called best and worst. Are you serious? And best and worst. Everyone around the table needs to say the best part of their day. It can be three things or one thing or five things. The worst part of your day. You have to. You can say that there is no that's worst part excellent. of my day, yeah. and then you've got to say one thing you're grateful for. And if you're having like a kind of a dull day or the kids are tired, maybe they will say, oh, I'm grateful for this meal, which is like a cop-out. But some days <laughs> they say things that are fantastic, you know, and you learn stuff out of that. But gratitude is, is absolutely central. That's I mean, awesome. some families might read the Bible or they might, mm. they might face East and, you know, once a day for us, we just focus on gratitude and it's an outgoing yeah. thing, not, an, not a congratulations to yourself. It's very, very important. That's a practice that serves me well. I'm feeling grumpy and miserable and feel sorry for myself. You know, I, I write a list. I get to number six or seven on that list of things I'm grateful for. Things are changing. It lifts. <laughs> and that's a miracle. Yeah. And that's about love, positivity, truth. You know, it's all those things are built into there, you know. Uh, so, yeah, gratitude is a big deal. What else do you do? I love my term spiritual fitness, to keep spiritually yes. fit. Because if you don't totally. practice it, we, we, we lose it. I used to, to be honest with you, I'm not as vehemently on the path as I used to be regarding the practices as okay. such so in the beginning when I was trying to get myself just to actually just changing the direction of the boat you know yeah. it takes a lot of lots a of lot coal of, in the yeah. engine room <laughs> yes, exactly. and then when you're going in the right direction you've got no, to make sure that you actually along, keep yeah. it yeah yeah totally so but reading writing is a big okay. deal I've, I kind of fluctuate between reading material on this topic and I read, I read a great book called The, Spiritu the Spirituality of Imperfection. Oh, awesome. Which, about a few years ago, and I kind of do a bit of a rework on that because that is such a great book and it just speaks about the imperfection of just how we, the whole thing is set up, yeah. you know? And you can place God somehow into that imperfection. Okay. Or place spirituality into that imperfection and accept that as being almost a gift. There's a great learning in there, I believe. So that's a, that's a, so I read, I write, also not much as I used to. What I do write a lot is gratitude lists. I mean, okay, that's for me cool, is the yeah. thing which I, I do. So it's for me, unfortunately, I'm a little bit of one of those um, guys who put sun cream on after I've got sunburned, you know? <laughs> so I feel, it, I feel it getting hot. I feel it getting yeah. hot. I feel it getting hot. And I think, 
I'm going to put sun cream on now and then I'm ready it's <laughs> too, too late, late. <laughs> so I don't get my sun cream on before I go out the house yes. <laughs> take it to the beach with me you know and after the first hour after the kids have all got their sun cream on and everyone's doing well then I go oh damn it yeah. <laughs> and the spirituality it's I'm a little bit like that too where I kind of almost get myself into a bit of a corner sometimes yeah. and then I apply the tools yeah. but the thing of it is though is that I'm okay with that because I've invested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours into developing those tools yeah. to protect me and to be available to me. For, so you've 30, got, for 40 yeah. years I had no tools. Yeah. I only had awesome. a num button. Yeah. That was my tool. <laughs> Something's going wrong here, don't want to feel it anymore. Yeah. Push the button. And then one of eight things happened yeah. that I didn't feel that thing anymore. I mean, you know, it's not really living. I hear you. So now it's about, rather than reaching for the num button, I reach for the tools when I need them. And that's, that's kind of Fantastic. how I work it, yeah. yeah. Last question. Always my last one. And I don't even want to ask this to you because it's so obvious. Is, um, are you happy? I am happy, but I have days when I'm a grumpy. A grumpy old fart. Big time. Why did you eat 50? It get, only gets worse. <laughs> yeah. There's that great line of um, restless, irritable and discontent from, I think, the NA or AA book. I can't remember which one. Actually, it comes and from the big book. The, the big book. book. The AA book, yeah. yeah. And that sums me up perfectly many days me as well about three or four times a month <laughs> and then i'm just you know but am i happy rest, am okay. i happy yes i am Fantastic. happy i'm happy and very grateful awesome sam thank you so much i, I always find it fascinating how the time flies while i'm doing this i really loved it thank you very thank very you much. So much have an awesome rest of your day you too i warned you about the passion I felt it the whole time during our chat. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I find it fascinating how he intellectualizes his spirituality, but yet does not let the rational override his feelings about his spirituality. I got to know Sam when he started being romantically involved with his wife. It was such a beautiful path he went on, and I wanted to ask him to tell us about the engagement, but there was just not enough time. I am so sorry about that. It was such a connection of spirits event that I shall never forget the day he told me about it. I'm so happy to see him living so connected and grounded and knowing how crazy busy his life is, I am beyond grateful for the time it took to chat to us. If you have any feedback or remarks, please feel free to pop me an email or connect on social media. It will be great to hear from you. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash freddy.org.za or on Twitter at at Rendsburg Freddy. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. Be safe. Bye.